Radio. Welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is to keep an open mind. And we have an extremely interesting show lined up for you today, because it's my great pleasure to welcome Ian R. Crane onto the show. Ian is an ex-oil field executive who now lectures and writes and broadcasts on the geopolitical webs that are being spun pretty much all over the world. And Ian primarily focuses his attention and research on the geopolitical arena, but has a big, big personal interest in folklore and mythology and ancient belief systems and indigenous cultures and that kind of thing. So uh, I'm very pleased to welcome him onto the show to discuss that and much more. Ian R. Crane, how are you? John, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. You're more than welcome. The pleasure's all mine. And in, indeed, uh, speaking of pleasures, not so many pleasures going on in the world with regard to our financial system and that kind of thing. A lot of doom and gloom being talked about and spoken about in the press, be it national, international, or through any of the media. In in very broad terms, what's your take on the global financial situation in a nutshell? Can you give it to me in one or two sentences, maybe? Um, a deliberately contrived global financial collapse to bring about the destruction of the middle classes and move the majority of the wealth into a very small amount of uh, bank accounts. Why, in? Why? It's basically, it's very simple. I mean, the agenda is about total control. It's not about money. Because those who perpetrate the agenda have all the money that they could ever dream of, uh, of wanting. And they have the, uh, the capability to basically create it out of thin air anyway, um, due to uh, them controlling the fractional reserve banking system. So this is about power. Let me use this very simple an uh, analogy. John, have you ever played a game of Monopoly? Many times. Right. Have you ever finished the game of Monopoly? Um, yes, but normally because I cheat. Ah, exactly. Well, exactly. And um, when you finished the game of Monopoly, what was the sort of state of play at that point? Well, the state of play, assuming things go the way I want them to, basically I own the board, I own everything on that board. I, mean, I control the world or the Monopoly world. There you go. You see, you're a budding globalist already. <laughs> don't, don't call me that. <laughs> no, but you have just described exactly what's occurring in the real world. You know, now, you are one of the very few people who have actually finished a game of Monopoly. I mean, the vast majority of people don't get that far. You know, they start playing, uh, say, on uh, the day after Christmas yep. uh, with the family. And after about sort of three days at it, eventually, if there's not been any fistfights, um, <laughs> everybody eventually agrees to sort of call it a day. And they simply add up whatever it is that they've got in terms of property and cash. And then whoever's got the most is declared the winner. But, of course, that is not the purpose of the game. What you have just described is absolutely the purpose of the game. It is total ownership of the board. It is the annihilation of every one of the opponents. Well, that's exactly what's occurring in the real world right now. It is about total control of the board. And right now, the socio-psychopathic global corporatists are literally in the final round. I mean, they have managed to achieve total ownership of Greece. So wh when, you, when you say that, Ian, you're talking about the banks, the banking system, the big companies, that kind of thing? 
Well, I'm talking about the, I mean, certainly the banks are the mechanics that help to bring this about. And of course, the primary bank is Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Um, you know, a guy called Alessio Rastani famously said on a BBC interview uh, last September, governments don't rule the world, Goldman Sachs rules the world. Well, he's not strictly correct, but I don't think he necessarily intended to be uh, factually correct. But he was absolutely on the money, as it were, mm-hmm. when it comes to identifying the mechanics, i.e. those who are effectively assigned to carry out the agenda of those who sit in the shadows and, uh, you know, are, are effectively playing their game of Monopoly. And, and Goldman Sachs is, is headed up by a chief executive officer, a guy called Lloyd Blankfein, who famously said in an interview about three years ago that uh, he felt he was doing God's work. Well, you know, God's work by sort of literally bringing the vast majority of the world into a state of austerity and, and poverty and economic misery mm-hmm. uh, may be his wet dream, but, you know, it ain't, the, uh, it ain't exactly the aspiration of uh, millions of people all around the world. And, and by the way, it also needs to be acknowledged that Goldman Sachs have rewarded um, Lloyd Blankfein very, very handsomely over the period because, you know, we are now in the fifth year of the global financial collapse. And in the period, in that period since the collapse began, Lloyd Blankfein has earned the princely sum of $183 million. And you say the fifth year in, would that in itself... Not t- I mean, that's the first time I've actually heard it in such blunt terms. It is. It's, it's what, four or five years since this whole crisis? It is whole the fifth year. We are in okay. the fifth year. It's four and a half years. Well, surely that's a message. Surely that should tell us something. I mean, maybe, maybe if, if we were, I don't know, a year into it, we could think governments are obviously trying to do something about this, or banking system is trying to do something about it. But, I mean, after five years, things seem to be worse, not better. John, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, if we were in the fifth week or the fifth month, you could give the governments and the media and the bankers maybe a little bit of leeway and say, well, you know, they didn't really see it coming and they're still trying to get a grip on, you know, what actually occurred and put the mechanism in place to bring about a recovery. Yep. But it's the fifth year. And all you're getting from governments and from the financial community is basically constant uh, uh, untruths. Um, no, let me be even more frank. Outright lies, deceit and obfuscation. You know, basically, the intention, the intention is to remove all financial freedom from the masses. So you'll notice that all of those in politics and in finance are still very, very well rewarded. I mean, when you hear Irish politicians talking about austerity, and and even recently, uh, I heard that, uh, you know, one of the Irish politicians basically made an observation that people must be prepared to earn less. But you're not going to see the politicians doing this anytime soon. And, you know, when you look at the pensions that uh, politicians award themselves, so that even when they get kicked out of office, they, they are never, ever going to experience austerity. So this is literally one rule for the masses and one rule for those who have literally sold their soul to perpetrate an agenda that sort of borders on uh, genocidal. Now, you know, Ireland right now is in an almost identical situation to that which it was in in 1799. Mm -hmm. At that point, the Irish nation was so indebted, financial debt, to the London banks 
that eventually the Irish government saw no option except to dissolve the Irish Parliament and uh, literally go into the dissolution of the nation. And so that was in, in 1800, the Act of the Union was signed, yeah. which effectively handed Ireland over to the British. And at that point, of course, the British landowners came in, they bought up the land at rock-bottom prices, and 40 years later, of course, we had the travesty, um, which is recorded as the Irish potato famine, but in reality, there was no famine. Well, yeah, from my own point of view, as somebody who has a keen interest in Irish history, to me... And these are strong terms, and many people might disagree with me. It's just my personal opinion. It's akin to genocide as opposed to famine. It was genocide. It was deliberate genocide by the British. There's absolutely no doubt about that, because thanks to Raymond Crotty, I have all of the shipping manifests that uh, uh, um, record the produce that was shipped out of Irish harbours during the period of the so-called famine. And what was happening was the British landowners were shipping out all the agricultural produce to sell elsewhere in the British Empire at enormous profit, of course, leaving the Irish people to effectively starve because there was indeed a blight on the potato and the British landowners had effectively forced the Irish population to live off this diet of potato. And, and when the potato was blighted, you know, they, they didn't even think about saying, well, OK, you know, We'll actually allocate 20% of the arable produce or 20% of our um, uh, meat produce yeah. you know, to the people of Ireland. No, the Irish people either died or emigrated, which, of course, was exactly what they wanted. Now, move the clock forward, because, you know, he here we are, uh, what, um, not even, uh, it was 212 years later. Yeah. 212 years later, and we're looking at literally history repeating itself. And, of course, this time it's not the British. It's the globalist. Uh, and in this situation, I mean, ostensibly, it's the EU, the European Central Bank and the IMF, acting on behalf of the socio-psychopathic corporate globalists. And what's happening here is Ireland has been specifically targeted, in my opinion, because Ireland has the potential to be the wealthiest nation in Western Europe. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, you know, first of all, it has enormous um, agricultural uh, capabilities. And in fact, uh, Raymond Crotty, who I will keep referencing because, in my opinion, he was the guy who uh, had the most foresight and the most vision uh, as to what was happening. I mean, he was a Kilkenny farmer. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as a Kilkenny farmer, he could see that the common agricultural policy was not exactly in the best interests of either the Irish agricultural industry or the Irish people. Yeah. And, and he knew that no one was going to take any notice of a, a Kilkenny farmer. So he went to college as a mature student and studied agricultural economics. And, and in fact, he was revered uh, by uh, uh, nations in South America and in the Far East because they absolutely valued what it was that he had to say regarding how a country could develop its um, agri-economy. But the Irish, of course, dismissed him as a maverick. And uh, he could see, he could see what was happening back in the 1970s and 1980s. And people needed to know that the referendum, now this is the fourth referendum that the Irish people have had uh, 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 regarding handing over sovereign power to a foreign entity. Yeah. And every referendum 
since um, uh, 1987 has been due to the fact that Raymond Crotty had the courage of his convictions and he took the Irish government through the Supreme Court and eventually in um, April of 1987 he got the Irish Supreme Court to rule that it was illegal for any Irish government to hand any element of sovereign independence over to a foreign entity without without um, a referendum of the people. And consequently, the first referendum was held in May of 87. Then, of course, we, we, the other two we know about, which was the, the referendum on the uh, EU treaty. Yep. And because the globalists got the wrong result, then they, they effectively changed the name of the EU treaty to the Treaty of Lisbon. Mm-hmm. And then, in my opinion, um, uh, uh, massaged the, uh, the result to get the one they want. And now, I mean, Ender Kenny... Um, you know, he's he's upheld the Constitution, but, of course, you know, already we're hearing voices in the government saying, well, if we don't get the result that we want, then we'll just have another referendum. That's right, Richard Bruton, incredible stuff. So, basically, Ian, what you're saying to me is this slew of referenda that we have had over the last number of years, be it Nice or Lisbon, no matter how many times we've had to vote on it, and the fiscal treaty, this is to do with the cedence of power to... An outside entity, for want of a better word. Absolutely. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a referendum at all. The re- and in fact, um, you know, the government in 1986 were desperately trying to get the Supreme Court to dismiss Crotty's uh, uh, claim mm. that this that to hand power to a foreign entity was unconstitutional because they wanted to be able to do it without the referendum. And of course, you've seen what's happened when the Greeks talked about holding a referendum back in um, in uh, November of last year. Yeah. Sorry, October of last year. Uh, Papandreou was uh, basically kicked out of office and he was replaced by uh, Lucas Papadimos. And Lucas Papadimos is a really interesting guy because he was head of the Greek National Bank when the National Bank was fudging the uh, figures along with Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. to convince the EU that it had done everything it needed to do uh, to achieve to meet the criteria for entry into the EU, so basically Greek, Greece was admitted into the EU under false pretenses, um, and and uh, Lucas Papadimos is a former associate of Goldman Sachs, and he is now the unelected leader of Greece. So the guy who got them into the mess is the guy who's supposedly leading them out of the mess. Well, except there's going to be elections now, and we'll see whether he manages to sort of hold on to that office, but. You know, even the elections may well be, um, you know, more appropriate in a banana republic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're exactly right. The guy that created the mess has effectively been put in charge to bring it out, and we know that doesn't work. But you know, it, it, and it's the same in Italy, where uh, Mario Monti has effectively been put into the leadership role in place of uh, Berlusconi. Now, Berlusconi obviously didn't necessarily help himself, but uh, you know, once again, a former associate of Goldman Sachs is put into the leadership role to supposedly help um, Italy recover. But this is not, there's no intention of recovery. The game plan is simply to dig the hole so deep before the people realise that they're absolutely being condemned to lives of abject economic misery. And, and this is in p- particularly the case with the young generation. And by this, I'm talking really about almost anybody under the age of 35. Yeah. Because, you know, what's happened 
is that uh, opportunities have been uh, just destroyed. And, you know, people have to be very, very creative to find ways of making a living. And if they're, unfortunately, perhaps not uh, uh, that creative, then they end up doing jobs that you know, really are demeaning, that they have way more capacity and capability to contribute to society, but they end up doing jobs that, you know, I mean, you know, somebody's always got to do these jobs. That's not my point. But the fact is that, you know, you've got people who are capable of technical work or um, uh, economic work or even political work, but they end up sort of delivering pizzas or stacking shelves. And this, but this is what they want. You know, this is what they want. They're literally trying to destroy the human spirit. And, you know, we actually have reference to this from um, Zbigniew Brzezinski mm-hmm. uh, in a book that he wrote 40-odd years ago. And, of course, Zbigniew Brzezinski is Obama's mentor. But in a book he wrote 40, uh, 40 years ago, yeah, 42 years ago, it's published in 1970. It's called Between Two Ages, the Technotronic Era. And in that book, he makes a very poignant observation. He says the challenge for Western governments will be to keep their people locked into consumerist materialism, preventing them from realizing who they truly are. So, Ian, the picture you're painting to me here now, it, it, it reminds me of something out of a movie. There's a movie I saw years ago. I think it's, it's an old, old film from maybe the 20s, the late 20s, by Fritz Lang called Metropolis. And in, in that yep. film, which... I know it's referenced in a lot of current music videos time and time again. You'll see it in Lady Gaga videos referenced or Beyonce, all that kind of stuff. It's basically um, a futuristic world whereby people are bred simply to work and to consume and they're almost yeah. stripped bare of humanity. Did, do you really think this is what, what, what these, um, these powers of beer are trying to do? Well, look around you. Look at, look at, look at the facts. Look at the evidence. What, what do you see? I mean, basically... Um, you know, we, we've seen, uh, I mean, the, the deliberate strategy was put in place with the creation of the euro and then with all of the um, fake credits pumped into the system, it was deliberately pumped in there to draw people into the debt trap, to draw people into the debt trap, to draw businesses into the debt trap and to draw nations into the debt trap. Because once obviously you've got somebody in debt, then you're beholden to them. And so consequently, with the exception of Iceland, all of these other countries are beholden to the financiers who um, you know, lured them into this debt. And th- this is why you know, we, uh, we have this uh, event in Dublin on uh, Sunday, five days before the referendum, you know, yeah. where we have the likes of John Perkins, the guy who was a former economic hitman, whose job was to get countries into debt. So he, you know, here's a guy who absolutely knows what's going on. He can see it. He, he was one of the guys, you know, he, who was doing this until he saw the light and decided that he needed to tell the world, you know, what was actually occurring. But still people don't want to listen. And, you know, what's happening is, unfortunately, people know that what I'm saying is the truth. But if they're not yet in total abject misery, their attitude is, oh, my God, oh, my God, all I've got to do is keep my head down. I've got to keep working 25 hours a day, eight days a week, 32 days a month, 13 months a year. I've just got to keep going, you know, keep on that hamster wheel, keep running, and maybe, just maybe, I'll get myself out of debt one day. No, you won't, because the circumstances will be contrived to ensure that you are always in debt, that you are always having to basically be an economic slave and literally uh, give up your, your freedom. I mean, one, one of the interesting things, John, 
mm-hmm. you know, when uh, when you when people meet each other in a sort of social capacity, what's one of the sort of first questions that normally gets asked? Well, h- how are you doing? I suppose. How are you doing? Yeah, and then from there, what, what do you do in Ireland? It's the weather, but then they'll move on to what do you do? Or people seem to be almost defined by career, job, or lack exactly. thereof. Exactly. Yeah. Well, people define themselves. It, it, what's really interesting, and it, it's sort of an indication of the degree of programming, is that people define themselves by what actually takes away their freedom, by by what actually takes away their liberty to do what they really want to be doing, because they have to work to be able to earn the living. And, you know, unfortunately, um, it's, an, it's a, an ever-decreasing number of people who get to work in jobs that they really enjoy. You know, when I worked in the oil industry, I was very, very fortunate. You know, I, I actually, uh, you know, had, had work that um, I, I did very much enjoy. Yeah. But, you know, I, I recognize that today, you know, that's a real luxury. And, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, I can speak for... All my children, who are, uh, you know, all well-educated, yep. but uh, not one of them is doing a job that they absolutely do. Now, one of them wasn't until recently because she was a diving instructor. Yeah. But the, the collapse of the economies has meant that the tourism industry has been affected, uh, you know, very, very badly. And uh, so, consequently, the competition for uh people to go diving or or um, undertake diving tuition is so great that she can no longer make a living from it well so you know she's she's a victim just the same and by the way she's her her degree is in international relations and politics well, there you go. And it, it, it's amazing because I think it's becoming more and more people. I'm very lucky in that I do a job that I really love as well. And however, amongst my friends, very few, those who are lucky enough to have jobs, whether you see it as lucky or not, depending on your perspective, those yeah. who, who are in employment, are oh, they're not in the minority just yet, but it's certainly heading that way. And a lot of people are taking jobs that they're maybe overqualified for or that they exactly. really don't want to be doing simply to make ends meet and the attitude that seems to be seeping in over the last year or so in particular that I've noticed amongst my peer group is that oh well we just have to make the best of it we have to struggle on we're all in the same boat together and it's something I really disagree with because personally and people can say it's very easy for me to uh, to, to sit in my high horse and say something like this because I am doing a job that I enjoy however I really believe we make our own, reali- our own reality and we're responsible for ourselves and the minute that we have a mentality shift that allows, be it a corporate entity or a government or another person, to take responsibility for us, well, then we cease to be who we should be or who we are. And I have a real problem with that. But I think in this country, in Ireland at the moment, that mentality, which is being fostered by the media, in my opinion, which is constantly telling us about doom and gloom, and where it's almost become trendy to be unemployed. And I don't mean that in a blasé way or in a condescending way to anybody or a patronising way to anybody who might be unemployed because it's, yeah. not, it's not a nice state of affairs. But the way the media is currently portraying it is, well, anybody who is in any way affluent or who's making the best of things in a tricky situation, they're to be kind of begrudged or frowned upon. They're, they're, they're part of the minority now. So to be in with the majority and to fit in, you have to be struggling or you have to be depressed or there has to be doom and gloom all the time and I really think as a collective nation our consciousness is moving in that direction and something has to change and you mentioned Iceland which is a country we hear very little about in the media in Ireland Dean Iceland 
as an example versus, say, the rest of Europe, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Italy, Spain, all these economies that, that seem to be crumbling before our very eyes. What can you tell me about Iceland and the model and what happened there that was different? Well, the, the um, basically, the thing that happened in Iceland needs to happen everywhere else. And, and Iceland should, of course, be held up as the shining example of a way to uh, get out of this mess. Because the Icelandic economy collapsed in totality, um, literally over just over three and a half years ago. And towards the back end of uh, 2008, I mean, Iceland was totally bankrupt in every sense of the word. I mean, the bankers had been uh, basically playing you know, roulette. I mean, they didn't even know the rules, which is really quite incredible. And, you know, there were a number of other banks, not least, uh, not least the CEO of Donska Bank, went over to Iceland early 2008 to try and explain to them that, you know, they were heading for absolute total meltdown if they carried on with their current strategy. And they basically booed him off stage. But a year later, of course, I mean, you know, he was proven to be extremely prescient. The difference is that um, Iceland has no history of finance, has no history of banking. It's not a banking nation. Right. Uh, and basically, you know, these guys... Um, jumped onto the proverbial bandwagon uh, in the in the days of outrageous amounts of credit being thrown around left, right, and centre by all of the European banks and milked it. I mean, mil- I mean, it was literally, I mean, it was market boys. You know, it was Del Boy on acid, right? Uh, but across the whole nation's banking system. So when it collapsed, I mean, it is literally. Imagine you're. Uh, I mean, putting it into a personal situation. It's like you or me suddenly finding ourselves in a situation where we owe a whole bunch of banks literally millions of, uh, of dollars, euros, pounds, whatever you want to use. And, and the nation, the nation as a whole just hadn't got the resources to deal with it. Okay. So what happened was that the government collapsed. The government had obviously lost control because the government weren't monitoring their banking system. So the government of the day is just as guilty as the uh, sort of uh, the financial uh, players. But the women of Iceland were not going to tolerate this. So the women of Iceland protested. They hit the streets. They started banging their pots and pans. And in fact, it became known as the Pots and Pans Rebellion. And when the government decided that it had to call um, an election, when the new um, uh, government came into being, it was very, very different in construction than the previous government. Primarily, it wasn't made up of one political party. It was generally independents who had the majority. Mm-hmm. And it was mainly women. Not exclusively, but it was mainly women. And the attitude in Iceland was, and I think quite rightly, the men had really screwed it up. Yep. And it was going to take the women with a completely different mindset to put it right. And and that that is absolutely critical and pivotal to what occurred because when the new government was formed one of the first visitors that they had was the imf and and the attitude of the women was uh, you know hang on a goddamn second you are claiming that you're here to help us get out of the mess but you're supposed to be the body that's monitoring the global financial community to make sure that none of this happens in the first place so why on earth would we turn to you for help? So they t- basically told the IMF to go take a hike. Excellent. And what they did, what they did was very, very creative. Let's go back to that game of Monopoly that you wiped the board with. Yeah. How, when, you, when you started that game of Monopoly, how did the game start? 
everybody's doled out a certain amount of, of paper money. Exactly. Everybody is given a set, a set of money. Not loaned, not lent. No, just, you don't, just you given. You don't borrow yeah. the money, it's yeah. given. So that's what stimulates the game. That's what pump primes the game, that everybody has an initial pot of cash. Okay. Well, the Icelanders, they didn't want to just sort of put a you know, monopoly money into the economy, if you like. But what they wanted to do was they wanted to make sure that people understood that, that, that one, they were in a world of hurt, and two, that they were all in this together, and that everybody needed to uh, rally round to uh, you know, bring them out of this situation. So what they did was very, very creative. First of all, they sort of effectively created their own monopoly money. They called it the People's Bank of Iceland, right. Krona, which you know, basically wasn't necessarily backed by anything other than the goodwill of the government and the people. Okay. It's like creating a local currency that, you know, you all agree that it's got some value, but it's not actually backed by anything. So what they did was they got their community leaders, I hate that word, but um, because it smacks of common purpose, but uh, <laughs> let's, let's say that like the local council leaders, they got them all together and said, okay, you know, we want all the communities to uh, contribute to reestablishing the economy. So we need a list of projects. Now, of course, there were people that were in essential industries like fishing and farming or whatever. Um, but, you know, there were people who really, they, they were involved in finance before. Now they had nothing. So, you know, the list of projects that got drawn up was things like, you know, filling in potholes in the roads or painting the houses of the disabled or the elderly. Yeah. I mean, it was anything and everything. And basically, if people wanted to get access to this new currency they had to work for it okay but the, so the money was put into the system no it wasn't nobody nobody owed anything for it i mean this is the difference with the pound and the euro every pound and euro in circulation somebody somewhere owes interest on it right. but what happened in iceland was that the money was put into the economy without anybody owing interest on it so it stimulated their new uh, you know, rise from the, from the ashes. So, um, uh, if businessmen did need to borrow money, they could borrow money from the People's Bank. Yeah. But then the interest came back to the people. It didn't go to private bankers. And basically, this is the model. This is the simple model that needs to be employed globally. Basically, it needs politicians with balls, which really doesn't exist. I mean, politicians and bulls, you know, are two terms that should never be uttered in the same phrase, basically. I agree. But because, basically, as Thomas Sheridan will explain in his uh, presentation at the financial terrorism event on Sunday in Stalorgan Park, you know, basically, everyone who gets into a political position is only there because they are effectively proven to be a safe pair of hands, which means that they will do as they're told. Yes. And that they won't show any... Um, uh, capacity for independent thought. So what this really needs is it needs like a pots at the equivalent of a pots and pans rebellion. I mean, it needs there's 300,000 people in Iceland, and this sort of thing is a lot easier to do with 300,000 than it is with 4.7 million or whatever. But you know what it needs? It needs a sufficient number of people in Ireland to realise that what's happening here is is you know death by the, the whatever it is the thousand cuts yep. it's like boiling a frog yes I like that analogy explain that one to us 
Well, boiling a frog, yeah, where you put the frog in cold water and you, you very uh, gently sort of turn up the heat and the frog's swimming around thinking, oh, this is wonderful. And uh, the water gets a little warm and you think, oh, this is great, you know, nice warm bath here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what's happening is the frog is actually not realising that the temperature of the water is being increased all the time and he's effectively being boiled alive. And eventually, of course, um, he just dies uh, because he's been cooked. Whereas if well, you had dropped him into that boiling pan, he would have jumped out straight away. Straight away. Yeah. Straight away. Well, one can argue that what happened in Iceland was a bit like that, because it literally happened overnight, because somehow the uh, financial community and the government were concealing from the people the magnitude of the uh, um, pending catastrophe. And, and when it happened, it happened absolutely sort of overnight. So it was a bit like the frog being dropped into the, the hot water and jumping straight out and the people saying, you know, absolutely no way are we going to be swallowing that one. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Ireland, Portugal, to a lesser extent Greece, although uh, we'll come back to Greece in a second, but, you know, it is the, the slow boiling here. And, and these guys are not going to stop until they own everything. And what's going to happen is exactly like in the 1840s. You know, the people with... Um, the, the, the capability to get out of the country will get out. And already you've got many, many young Irish people moving to Australia, to New Zealand, to Canada. So already the country is starting to, to lose, you know, its talent. I mean, Brian Lenihan, God rest his soul, but Brian Lenihan, uh, after the budget of uh, December 15th, 2010, actually said, you know, we need, we need 300,000 people to leave the country. Incredible. I mean, this is, this is absurd. I mean, he, um, you know, he had pancreatic cancer and um, uh, I think he died um, uh, earlier this year. Yeah. But, uh, you know, basically for a politician, a senior politician to state categorically that we need 300,000, and he might as well have said we need 300,000 of our best and our brightest to leave because that's what happened. And, and the rest of the people, happen. you know, what's left are just going to be the economic slaves. And what's the way out, Ian? Is there a way out? Yes, there is, of course, a way out. And that's, like I've said, it's to, it's to extrapolate the model of what has happened in Iceland. Basically, the uh, fractional reserve banking system, the total control of the global economy, which has been the quest of the, the global corporatists for... You know, over 400 years, uh, and they've been working at this for over 400 years, and I mean, now they're in the final round. You know, their game of Monopoly has been building up to this crescendo. Uh, so, you know, the name of the game is basically for the nations to tell the private bankers that they have had their day. We need to burn every single bondholder there is. You know, people have bought into the bonds, the funds, whatever financial mechanism they've got, the CDs, uh, the credit default swaps, that is, you know, whatever else they've got into, they've got into them because they gambled. They gambled. And we know that Goldman Sachs has been abusing the small investor. And by small investor, I'm talking about anybody with six figures. Okay. Unless you, unless you had seven figures, you were considered a small investor. And Goldman Sachs was fined half a billion, 500 million dollars a few years ago because they were caught red-handed providing completely contradictory advice to the small investors than they were to the institutional investors and the nature of the game in goldman sachs and of course with the recent resignation of greg smith 
who revealed that the culture of Goldman Sachs was to refer to the small investors as Muppets. And the nature of the game was to literally fleece the Muppets and pass those funds, which is effectively the middle classes, those funds into the hands of the institutions. And basically that's what's going to continue to happen until such time as the people actually say, like they did in Iceland, enough is enough. Enough's enough. You know, whatever it is you've got, you've got, and that's it. That's all you're getting. Because, you know, what's happened right now is the Irish government, and we can trace the moment that this occurred to the meeting in September 2008 when Brian Cowan and Brian Lenihan were effectively instructed by Paul Gallagher, who was a sitting attorney general, and Dermot Gleeson, the chief executive of Allied Irish. Mm -hmm. And Cowan and Lenihan were effectively instructed to uh, underwrite all Irish banks' liabilities by uh, stating that they were underwritten by the, effectively the taxpayer. So what Cowan and Lenihan did in that one fell swoop was commit future Irish taxpayers to phenomenal levels of interest payments. So the bottom line is that Ireland has no chance, absolutely no chance of any recovery until such time as there is a fundamental change in direction, which basically means shutting down all of the, uh, the, the current uh, payments to the, the central banks, and literally Ireland starting up a new economy, just like it did in Ice, the Icelanders did um, three and a half years ago. Yes, of course, it's tough in the short term. It's very tough. But, you know, what happened is that the people in Iceland genuinely acknowledged that they were all in this together, I believe that the people of Ireland would acknowledge that, you know, they're all in this together and, uh, um, and they would find a, a way through it. And I mean, those that didn't want to, you know, sure, they can leave the country. What you need, be, what you need is people who are committed to restoring the true potential of Ireland as a great nation. And it has it. You know, Ireland, because of its location on the west of Europe, actually has 23% of all of the EU's fishing waters within its boundaries, within its national boundaries. But thanks to the pressure put on, well, pressure, probably no pressure at all, but thanks to corrupt Irish politicians, um, only 4% of those fishing waters can be used by Irish fishermen. And I think the that's something that most people don't realise. 23% of the fishing waters, yet we have given away 19% of that well, you gave it away for one-off payment of six billion euros, which is horrendous. It's outrageous. Amazing. I mean, it's, that's, yeah. a, that's only a, a, a drop in the ocean compared to what's going to bondholders and people who aren't actually owed any money. Exactly. Oh, exactly. You know, and that's just the fishing. And like I said, you know, Raymond Crotty, 30-odd uh, years ago, um, nearly 40 years ago, could see what was happening with the common agricultural policy, and he could see that the intent was to destroy Irish farming and remove any possibility of Ireland being self-sufficient in terms of uh, food production. And then, and then we get on to the oil and gas, which is even more outrageous, mm -hmm. you know, when, especially when you consider that the Nigerian government got a better deal for its people with Shell than the Irish government did when it effectively gifted Shell the, uh, the licenses to um, uh, produce the gas off the West Coast. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, basically, the bottom line is Ireland needs a government that nationalizes those resources, takes control of those resources, and, uh, and, and uses, utilizes those resources 
for and on behalf of its people. A bit like Gaddafi did for 40 odd years. You know, people, if anybody believes the media um, um, depiction of Gaddafi, then unfortunately they are seriously deluded. You know, Gaddafi, whilst he may not have been a saint, he certainly has a lot less blood on his hands than the likes of Blair and uh, Bush and even Cameron and Obama. Um, and he was using the wealth that was generated by the natural resources, by the oil, and he actually restricted the output of uh, Libyan oil to ensure that it was wealth that could be enjoyed by the country for many, many generations to come. Yeah. He, you know, he didn't allow a policy of absolute you know, rampant extraction, like which occurs in, say, um, Azerbaijan. But you know, now, now that uh, NATO have um, effectively removed Gaddafi, and, and of course in doing so, they also destroyed one of Gaddafi's most ambitious projects, which was to tap into the giant underground uh, aquifers uh, under the, uh, the northern Sahara, bring the water to the surface, and, and through a network of seven-foot concrete conduits, literally bring the water to the northern Sahara, and the whole objective was to push the Sahara further south and turn that uh, land into arable farmland. And, and Gaddafi's dream was that ultimately the Arab-African economy could be totally self-sufficient. Well, when the French started their bombing runs, um, very early on in the, in the bombing campaign, they destroyed that conduit. And that conduit, by the way, only went on stream in uh, September of 2010. Um, they, they destroyed the conduit. And then a few days later, they destroyed the factory that produced the conduits. I mean, these are war crimes. These are out-and-out out war crimes against a sovereign nation. And, of course, you know, Tony Blair was guilty of preparing the ground because if Gaddafi did have any sort of weapons of mass destruction, then Blair persuaded him to uh, forego them so that uh, Libya could be admitted back into the international community. When, when, of course, the objective the whole time was to ensure that the corporate globalists actually took control of Libya's resources. And because Gaddafi knew what their game was, the only way they were going to get control of uh, Libya's resources was to take Gaddafi out of the equation. So In Ireland, all it needed was a few uh, brown paper bags and a few envelopes stuffed with goodness knows what um, to bribe uh, certain politicians to hand it over. Which is pretty pathetic when, when you think about it. And we know what the mainstream media can be like um, in terms of the picture that it paints. Most people, certainly in Ireland, would have um, up to recently considered that Gaddafi was evil. And he was <laughs> this, you know, he was this terrible, terrible despot who ruled with an iron fist over all his people. And the truth has actually refreshingly come to the fore since the, in my opinion, absolutely genocidal and despicable acts that were committed by NATO and France and Britain and the US and anybody else who may have aided them for Nothing other than an issue of control and oil and money, as you have said. But what we're looking at, I mean, to me, that's a form of terrorism. It's, yes, it's of not some, it is. It's not some guy hiding in a cave. It's a form of terrorism. But what you have described in Ireland, and by extension the rest of the EU or the, the Eurozone, is, is the same. It's financial terrorism. It's, it's terrorism with a, a different gloss over the surface. In my opinion, the end game is the same. Well, that, that's why we have these events. I mean, we're, we're hosting this one in Ireland in, uh, on Sunday at the Stalorgan Park Hotel. Um, you know, we have an advert for it um, in the uh, in the Irish Times on uh, Thursday, and the, the header across the top of the the advert is "Why can't Ireland do an Iceland?" 
well, the reason Ireland can't do in Iceland is because Ireland doesn't have any politicians that are sufficiently courageous to challenge the global corporatists. I mean, you know, there's been the odd politician, um, particularly within Sinn Féin, I have to say, mm-hmm. um, who have challenged um, the, the, uh, uh, both the policies of Brian Cowan and of uh, Ender Kenny. But, you know, the reality is that they're doing that from the back benches. And what's also interesting is that if it's known that they're going to give a speech challenging um, the the policy to hand over this uh, sovereign power to a foreign entity, Parliament empties. So they end up giving the speech effectively to an empty chamber. Yeah. But, I mean, this is this is horrendous. I mean, I have you know, really, I am shocked that, uh, you know, so many... Um, uh, politicians can be so easily bought. You know, they have sold their soul. They're not looking after the best interests of the nation. In fact, you know, the tragedy is, I believe that there's a very strong possibility that the Irish politicians actually do believe that they're acting in uh, on behalf of the best interests of the Irish people. But unfortunately, this only serves to illustrate their degree of financial illiteracy. Absolutely. I think it's reflective of the type of people who are in power, which comes back to something you said at the beginning of the conversation, as to the type of person who is attracted to politics and who is put before the electorate through the, I suppose, the methods used by various political parties for selecting their candidates. And that then we have the illusion of choice. So, I mean, oh, yeah, we, we get to vote and we get to choose who we put in power, but we don't get to choose who we choose from, if that makes any sense. It's, no, of course you don't. It, it's a paradigm. And do you, do you think then, in that politics, this can be changed through politics, or does it take something more radical? Or, for example, you've Johnny or you've Mary sitting at home in their house in Fox Rock or in Stillorgan or in Ballymun or wherever it might be around the country, and they're sitting there and they're listening to us talking now and they're saying, right, those two guys don't know what they're talking about. Conspiracy theory, there's nothing I can do. I'm powerless. What would you say to Johnny or Mary? Okay, well, first of all, I would say... You know, that if they absolutely dismiss everything we've discussed as pure conspiracy theory, then all I can do is encourage them to take a look at the evidence. Yeah. You know, f- first of all, there's no excuse for people not to be informed today because, you know, we have this wonderful tool. I'm not sure for how much longer, so let's make use of it. It's called the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it gives people access to a phenomenal repository of information. Now, of course, there's a lot of crud on the Internet. And it's absolutely essential that people practice the arts of discretion and discernment to be able to determine, you know, what's good, genuine information and what's a complete crock of crap. Yeah. Um, and that, that obviously takes some time and some practice. Um, but can this thing be changed through politics? As you have just said, with the existing political paradigm, and particularly in Ireland, which has a culture of political dynasty, you yeah. know, where, where seats tend to be passed down into the family... And, you know, one, when one member retires or dies, then in, inevitably, if the son or the daughter steps into their shoes, yeah. you know, that they start with a phenomenal advantage. So, you know, Ireland has this culture of political dynasties, to some extent, very much like the US. Um, you know, we, we don't see the same sort of political dynasty uh, is, is within the families in the, in the UK. But nonetheless, nonetheless, exactly the same situation is applied, as you described, when nobody gets into office unless they have effectively passed muster and are perceived to be a safe pair of hands, i.e. that they will do exactly what they're told. So can we change this through the political arena? Um, Well, 
Cha- changing the political process has to be part of the game because there is no panacea here. There is no one thing that um, you know you can put your finger on and say, if we do this, then everything will be resolved. Right. Not at all. I mean, we have to focus on the education. We have to encourage people to understand what's occurring. We have to encourage people to um, uh, have a desire to achieve some degree of financial literacy. Yeah. So it doesn't, I mean, I know different people have different capabilities and different capacities and different levels of interest. All we can do is ask people to absorb as much as they possibly can to understand, you know, what's occurring here. And I think, you know, that once the people understand, once it becomes in the consciousness, once there's a a comprehension that basically the the existing system not only isn't working, well, it is working, it's not working in the way they're told it should be working, but it is working because it's working to achieve the objective, which is to fleece them of everything that they've got, to fleece them of everything that they've busted their butt to accumulate in the course of their lives or maybe even in in the lives of their ancestors. And there is an agenda to remove it from them. And, you know, the bottom line is that no social change at any point in history, anywhere on the planet, has ever been brought about by the working classes. Uh, And my God, they've tried. You know, but when the working classes try to initiate uh, social change, they get brutally beaten back. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, any any quest for change is um, nipped in the bud. It is only when the middle classes realise that basically there is an agenda to fleece them and they start to wake up to it and and actually recognise that unless they do something about it, then everything that they have is going to be taken from them and also they are condemning future generations to lives of absolute misery, then then that can bring about change. And, And that's what we have to work to achieve we have to work to spread the word, to get into the consciousness what's actually occurring, and then create the desire to bring about change. And once, I believe that once, even corrupt politicians, once they realize that actually they're going to be out of a job, yeah. because they're just not going to get elected, and, and I know, you know, we still have the problem of rigged elections, etc., etc., but I mean, there comes a point where if the movement is so strong, it's nigh on impossible to rig the elections because everybody knows what the result should be. Yes, yes. So there's no panacea here. There is no overnight solution. I mean, I don't see the Irish government any time soon saying, you know what, we're going to do what Iceland did and we're going to tell the bondholders they can go whistle. I don't see that happening. It absolutely won't. If there's a massive no vote, in the next referendum, it's a start. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I really think that there, the onus is on, this is my personal opinion, Ian, um, the onus is on the individual. So yes. the, the onus is on me to take personal responsibility within my own life, for example. I, th- I think that's where it starts. Number one is to take back your individual power. We, so many of us assume that we have no power and we look to the government or to our teachers or whoever it might be. Or to the a, priest. Or a priest, exactly, or whoever's in a perceived position of authority or power over us. We look to them to lead us. To me, that's bullshit. It's absolute nonsense. We're the ones with the power. And the only reason that these people have power, as it is perceived, is because we cede it to them. We give it to them. Literally, we give it to them through various means. Be well, it- we give it to them in one of three ways, generally, and that's apathy, yep. abdication, and our willful ignorance. Well, there you have it in a nutshell. Absolutely. So I think the key 
for everybody, and I think that's what you're saying, is to, uh, to take back that power, take your individual responsibility, and the collective consciousness or mindset or reality will shift as a result, yeah? Exactly. And, and like I said, you know, anybody expecting a quick fix is going to be very, very disappointed. You know, but the, the, my sense is, and I've been um, on this trail, if you like, uh, now for 14 years. It's 14 years since I came out of the oil industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't really know necessarily uh, how things were going to unfold. I just knew that I didn't want to be doing for the next 20 years what I'd been doing for the previous 20 years. Right. Um, and when 9-11 went down, I already had enough background knowledge to know what 9-11 was all about. It took me seven months to absolutely prove to myself beyond any shadow of doubt that 9-11 was an inside job. I don't profess to know exactly what occurred through every detail. What I do know is what didn't occur because I've studied the evidence and I know where the evidence does not support the official version of events. So with 9-11, obviously then that really triggered my... um, uh, increased uh, ardor with which I uh, studied deep geopolitics. And so, you know, now for 11 years, nearly 11 years, I have been full-time, a full-time researcher, presenter, broadcaster on deep geopolitics, which is looking at the global agenda, looking at how all the dots uh, are connected, how all the pieces of the jigsaw fit together and show that nothing that occurs is random you know in in nine times out of ten 99 times out of a hundred it is pre-planned it is contrived it doesn't always go according to their plan and and this is what is bringing about i think their downfall because what's happening is as they become more desperate to establish their global government they get sloppy and uh, and for example i mean if absolutely anything happens at the london olympics this year yeah. that isn't on the official schedule be very very suspicious you know we have an event event here you know there's 49000 military personnel going to be um supplementing the the normal policing we have a helicopter carrier in the thames we have apartment blocks with anti aircraft missiles on the roof We have uh, long-range sonic weapons on barges in the Thames. We have an 11-mile perimeter fence around the London Olympic Carina that can turn the whole area into a concentration camp in a heartbeat. We have full-body scanners being implemented uh, to search people uh, as they get into the Olympic area, and so on and so forth. To say nothing of the phenomenal level of CCTV, the facial recognition software, you know, one of the concerns I have is that even if nothing happens at the London Olympics, then, you know, the level of security that is introduced for the event becomes the norm. Uh, but, you know, even things like that, I think, start to get people to question and go, hang on a goddamn second, what's really going on here? And that's good, because people need to question that. This is a sporting event, supposedly. And yeah. what you've just described sounds like a war, or a war no, it's, it's, it's outrageous. It's absolutely incredible. George Orwell's 1984 springs to mind. Well, he didn't, I mean, you know, he didn't even get half of it. Um, I mean, it was an incredibly prescient book. But, I mean, let's not forget that Zbigniew Brzezinski, writing his Between Two Ages in, 19, um, in 1969, published in 1970, and, I mean, everything that guy talks about, you know, the tectro- technotronic control grid, cashless 
the cashless society, you know, where all transactions are monitored. I mean, part of that is about making sure that nothing gets under the radar regarding taxation. Yes. You know, um, but all transactions are monitored. The people's behavior uh, is is literally predictable based on recording every single movement they make. And that's where smart meters come in. You know, smart meters are all about hooking people into the total control grid. So that, you know, every time you open your fridge, every time you take a product out, it can be recorded somewhere. You know, right now, some of the stores sell clothes with RFID chips in. Uh, I mean, I know which, which stores those are. One is Marks and Spencers. Consequently, if I buy anything in Marks and Spencers, I always make sure I use cash. Because okay. otherwise, the RFID chip that's in that um, uh, a clothing item is, is obviously linked electronically to the credit card or debit card that was used to purchase it. That information is then in the global control grid. So you've got a situation where eventually, sort of walking down the street, the RFID sensors could pick up the fact that, uh, you know, you're wearing a T-shirt that was bought in Marks and Spencers on such and such a date, um, and that it is linked to so-and-so who used their credit card to purchase it. You know, I mean, it, everything, and all this stuff was being talked about 40-odd years ago, and, and now it's coming into being. You know, it is really time for people to wake up and see the fact that, uh, uh, you know, we are literally allowing ourselves to be enslaved, it's being presented as advancements in technology. No, it's not. It's advancements in the control grid. And I think each advancement comes back to your analogy of the, fr the frog in, in the boiling pot of water. We're drip-fed exactly. drip this technology and these developments. And in a sense, we're buying into our own enslavement, I think. We are indeed. You know, and the good news is, the good news is that, you know, more and more people are waking up to this. So let's bring this down to a sort of a positive ending, if you like. Yeah. You know, because, <clears throat> you know, obviously we focused on everything that is occurring, and you are absolutely right, John. You know, it is essential that people get involved, that they take responsibility, that they actually find a cause, and they get involved, and they work to bring about the changes that they want to see. But, you know, another way of looking at this is that, you know, it's only when we have deep personal trauma in our own lives that we are truly living because, you know, the rest of the time, we're just existing. You know, yes. we go through a routine. We get up in the morning, put a kettle on, have a cup of tea, make the kids breakfast, get the kids off to school, you know, go out the door, go to work, go through our routine at work, probably leave the brain in the locker room while we're at work, mm -hmm. you know, come home, um, you know, make tea for the kids, uh, sit down, have a brief chat with the kids, watch TV, well, have a beer, have a Guinness, whatever, go to bed. It's a routine. It's only when shit happens in our lives, you know, all of a sudden we lose our jobs or... You know, we, we, we have a relationship issue um, or we have some other kind of financial issue or somebody in the family, close family is impacted in, in one of these ways. You know, then we actually have to stop and take stock and we have to actually sort of reflect and think, oh, my God, you know, what is it in my life that I need to change to maybe get out of this mess and maybe avoid it happening again in the future? And, you know, it maybe takes a bit of a while to work through it. You know, some of this stuff can take six months, nine months, 12 months, years even yeah. to work through. But when we work through it, ultimately we look back and we go, wow, you know, shit, that was a hell of a ride. But I'm actually a better person because of that experience. And then, you know, we get another period maybe of, of uh, routine. And then, you know, the universe or whoever sort of thinks, well, OK, it's time for another lesson. And boom, the rug's pulled out from under us and off we go again. Well... 
fortunately, you know, life isn't generally one sort of continuous line of trauma. Uh, we do get a bit of respite along the way. Mm. But consider what's happening now is exactly that, but on a macro basis. Yes. So this is humanity's opportunity to raise its game. And just like all games or all sporting pastimes, the only way you improve is to actually play against people who are better than you. Of course. And, and in terms of sort of global domination, you know, those who think they're the rightful rulers of the planet have been doing this for a long time, a very long time. And they think they've got it mastered. But, you know, they haven't reckoned on the fact that something is occurring. Humanity collectively is starting to wake up to their game. And, and it is, it is my contention that whether they realize it or not, and the answer, of course, is probably not, they are actually doing us a massive favor because they're giving us a collective kick up the backside to say, look, you know, you're actually capable of a lot more than this, but, you know, we're going to have to sort of force you into misery to get you to recognize it. Because it's only when you're completely beaten down and, uh, you know, the, you feel that the world's at an end that you actually rise to the challenge and come through it. So I actually think that, you know, what's going on right now in terms of the longer term is really quite constructive. Because were it not for events like 9-11 or the London bombings, or even in Ireland, I mean, even with the Troubles, I mean, actually, you know, I, in the early days of my research, I came across a lot of people, um, you know, from Ireland and from the north who had done their own research into the Troubles yeah. and realized the degree of manipulation that was going on behind the scenes and realized that it wasn't quite like it was presented in the media yeah. and actually started to take an interest in the deeper machinations. So, you know, that, that's now really what's occurring on a much, much larger scale. Well, I think it comes down to, uh, you, you mentioned macrocosms, and if each person sees himself as a microcosm of the world at large, uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it might have been Gandhi who said, be the change that you wish to see in the world. And I think exactly. that's probably the message that we are to take from this. I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think there's another thing that we have to do as well, and, and that is, I think, you know, we should also visualize the type of future that uh, we want to see. I mean, I've been running a series of workshops over the past uh, few months now, called the shift and one of the things that you know i look at in those workshops is i look at the scientific evidence that demonstrates that you know we have enormous capability and capacity within each and every one of us yes, yes. Um, and, and there's a tremendous effort to shut that awareness down because those who think they're the rightful rulers of the planet do not want us to realize the full extent of our capability and capacity because if we do wake up to that they are totally, totally screwed. Personally, I believe that they will be, and I think that people will. I can see it myself in daily life. While there is much doom and gloom out there, I think there is an awakening, particularly amongst younger people. And I'm very pleased that you could join me to talk about that today, Ian, because it's the younger people who are the future. I mean, we, we, are, we are going to be the people who carry whatever happens forward, in whatever capacity that may be. And I think any kind of an awakening or any 
access to information that people can provide others or discussions or anything like that. Everything like that is positive, in my opinion. And the more Absolutely. Th- th- it really needs to change. But it starts with the individual. It starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with Johnny and Mary, who we spoke about earlier. And nobody should feel that they're going to be left behind or that they, they, they are not powerful. Or they're, they're not insignificant because we all start with a blank slate. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And what you're doing with your radio shows, John, is absolutely a contributory factor in all of this. Well, we'll keep fighting the good fight. And tell us more, first off, about the Stillorgan Park Hotel, because uh, for anybody who might be interested in delving into further depth, they can do so in Dublin. Yeah, it's going to be uh, an event. It's going to be a massive event. Um, I mean, we're really trying to reach out to people right across Ireland, which is why we're starting the event at one o'clock in the afternoon so that people can get an opportunity to get up at a reasonable hour and still get there. So it kicks off at one o'clock. Doors will open at 12. And um, who do we have there? Well, we have um, uh, Thomas Sheridan um, is a wonderful uh, gentleman from Sligo who's written a superb book called Puzzling People. Um, and he's going to be talking about uh, psychopaths in society um, and psychopathic behavior in the Dollaran. Um, he's going to uh, be followed by William Engdahl, who's written a superb book called Gods of Money. Yep. Um, then we have some guy called uh, Ian R. Crane. I've heard of him. Um, yeah, I've, you've heard of him? I've heard of him, too. <laughs> anyway, he says he's speaking with a guy called Anthony Coughlin who worked very closely with Raymond Crotty back in the uh, 1970s. Fantastic. So it's going to be interesting to get his perspective on everything that's occurring. And then in the evening, the evening session, which will start at, I think, around about uh, 7 o'clock, the evening session, we have Max Kaiser from Russia Today. And, of course, uh, you know, Russia Today is the one of the few news channels that um, actually tells the truth. Yes. I mean, who would have ever who would have ever believed thirty years ago that we'd be talking about tuning to a Russian TV station to actually get the truth? It's but, amazing. You know, there you amazing. go. <laughs> so Max, Max Kaiser, along with his um, uh, his cohort Stacy Herbert, they'll be on first on Sunday evening, and then uh, bringing the event to a close will be John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and the guy who has been working as a consultant with Iceland to help Iceland build the foundations for its economic recovery. So this, in my opinion, is, with, with possibly one exception, i.e. me, but, I mean, it's a, it's a world-class lineup, uh, And, you know, th- these are people who have looked at the deeper agenda, people who, I, dare I say it, actually have a far greater comprehension of what's occurring than probably almost anyone in the Irish political arena today. Amazing. It's going to be a, a top-class event. I'm really looking forward to it, and people can get details on tickets on my website, djjohngibbons.com, and pretty much all over the internet at the moment, and they can check out the advertisement in the Irish Times if they dare to buy such a pub- publication on Thursday <laughs> as well. Ian, tell us about your website before we let you go, and how people can <coughs> learn more about you and subscribe to your newsletter and that kind of thing. Okay, well, I have a number of ways. Um, I also publish two magazines. Uh, which have uh, I've only been publishing them since the beginning of the year. They're both produced, they're both edited in New Zealand, but they are absolutely essential uh, global information. One is called Uncensored Magazine. Yep, that's been running for six years in New Zealand, but uh, this is we are now into the second issue in Europe, and uh, that covers uh, everything and anything, anything that won't be addressed by the mainstream media. 
Um, and the uh, the website for that one is uncensoredmag.co.uk. Uncensoredmag.co.uk. Yeah, and then we have the New Zealand Journal of Natural Medicine. With you know, we have legislation in Europe now, which of course I've been talking about for many years. I've been saying it was coming, and I was dismissed as a rampant conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the first of May last year, a wonderful piece of legislation was introduced in the EU called Thumped. Yes, which stands for the Traditional Herbal Medicines Products Directive which basically means that by April 30th of next year, 2013, all natural herbal medicinal products must be removed from shelves in the EU unless they have been specifically approved. And, of course, the approval process is so outrageously expensive that very few companies can afford it, with the exception of Big Pharma. Yeah. But um, there's similar legislation going down in in New Zealand, but this magazine is absolutely outstanding in terms of looking at um, natural health uh, processes from around the world. The New Zealand Journal of Natural Medicine, the website is nznaturalmed.co.uk. Okay. And then finally, my own website is ianrcrane.com, ianrcrane.com, and that's where people can find out where I'm speaking and DVDs that I've been releasing over the years. And, you know, many of the DVDs that I produced in, like, 2006 and 2007... I mean, they're still on sale because everything I talked about in those you know, six, five and six years ago, everything I talked about has unfortunately come to pass. And I don't claim any special insight. I simply read the scripts. Ian, give us a final message for the listeners before you go. The final message is everything that's going on in the world right now is like a cancer. And if you don't do anything about it, you know what the end result's going to be. And it isn't going to be very pretty. But if you actually... Take the time, take the trouble to do some research and and don't just accept the mainstream solution of chemotherapy or whatever the uh, equivalent is. Mm -hmm. But you actually do your research and you look at alternatives. You know, many, many people are starting to realize that there are ways in which they can fight cancer, um, which are far less obtrusive than the um, methods being put forward by the establishment. They don't need to subject themselves to chemotherapy and... um, radiotherapy and the like there are natural ways of resolving the problem and we have exactly the same going on right now in the world what we have is a cancer the solution that's being put forward by the establishment is designed effectively to kill us so you know we have to find alternatives those alternatives are out there and you know when we find the way let's consider it a challenge let's rise to the challenge and when we come through the other side you know we're going to look back and we are going to say it was a hell of a ride But my God, it was worth it. It was absolutely worth it. I actually believe that those who think they're the rightful rulers of the planet are fighting a rearguard action right now. They're they're becoming desperate. And we, you know, what I do, I do without anger. I do without fear. I just point out what is. I don't expect anybody to take anything I say at face value. I simply encourage people to, you know, take a look at this for themselves, to come to their own realization of what's going on, because it's only then that it becomes their truth. But, you know, between us all, between us all, I know we're going to win the day. And I know that eventually we are going to provide um, a better opportunity for the coming generations i have the power you have the power we have the power in our crane it's been a great pleasure having you on today and speaking to you today we'll speak to you very very soon i hope thank you once again thanks john i much appreciate it alchemy radio, alchemy radio.
things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please, at least leave us alone in our living room. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. My life has value. My life has value. Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm 